Hello and welcome to the Travelling Through podcast. I am your host, Emma, and each week I'm out and about chatting to Londoners and those who love, live and work in this big and glorious city. This is the second part of my discussion with Richard Lapper, who is a journalist and author of Beef, Bible and Bullets. Brazil in the age of Bolsonaro. We set off on foot from Wapping and walk to Tower Hamlets Cemetery Park through various other parks and also Limehouse Basin. So it's a real mix of talking about London, Brazil and many other things in between. If you haven't listened to the first part, do tune into that too. Without further ado, I shall let this episode get going with Richard's thoughts on London, the world and life. Okay, we're back. We've left the apartment and Richard and I are now walking along the Thames path. Yep. Um, from Wapping, we've got, the, we've got the River Thames on our left. The sun is shining. It's a beautiful June day. Yeah. And um, yeah, where, where are we walking to, we're walking, um, we're walking to King Edward Seventh Park. There's a little park in Wapping um, which we was kind of like our garden during lockdown and we kind of walked around it uh, I suppose at least three or four times a week it's actually the site of a very big infrastructure project in London they're building the super sewer here the super, uh, super sewer super sewer oh yeah you know the London sewers yes. were built in the 1850s and are you know in extreme state of disrepair and this is the answer and it's, it's been going on for about five years and it'll soon be over, um, we hope. Um, on the other side of the river, there's uh, Rotherhithe. Yes. Uh, and you can see the church of, the, the church oh, in Rotherhithe the there. Yes, the that, spire. is that the Swedish church? Or no, the that's, uh, that's churches, um, I should know what it is. I don't offhand, uh, senior moment. Uh, and then we go, you know, down the river um, there's on the other side there's uh, behind us really is Canary Wharf and then you know carry on down the river and you get to Greenwich around the bend yes and, so, on, th- and on this side it's like old wharfs yeah I mean yeah. this is a this is the jetty that was built alongside the warehouses here and actually is part of Free Trade Wharf and was um, used to you know land and load and unload, well, unload in case of our building uh, saltpeter, you know, raw material for for gunpowder in the 19th century. Yes. And uh, cut it off to the Napoleonic Wars or wherever, you know. Yeah, yeah, um, yeah. But um, on this other right-hand side, there's the 1990s free trade wharf, um, sort of replaced the original warehouse, the bit of the original warehouse that survived that was owned by the East India Company originally is uh, the Lister building which is where we've come out of it's where the our apartment was was started in 1997 yes um, so we just come round the corner here into King Edward the seventh part um, oh wow it's very close isn't it yeah yeah but this wharf is completely it's it's rotten, kind of it's rotten it? and it's been taken down I mean there's a protracted process uh, involving the management company in our in the free trade wharf building to take this down it's we don't know how much it's going to cost it has to come down it should have come down quite a while ago yeah it's very unsafe isn't it gone beyond repair now and obviously you know stuff could be falling off that would represent a danger and potential liability out there so it has it will go i mean there's there are plans afoot 
and um, so we come through and this is just a very small oh part my goodness. started in the 1920s um, and um, yeah I mean it used to be used to have a nice little bowling green attached to it and it's got tennis courts and so on and um, yeah it's kind of a nice little space it's a, little a nice angel, little patch of green Look yeah um, I love it love it that councils now are letting the grass grow. Letting the grass grow, yeah. yeah. So the bees can, yeah, can, can the wild flowers, out the, the pollen on the wild flowers. Yeah, and yeah, I mean this is, yeah, too much rubbish around here. But you know that's that's not rubbish. That's that's a, a the box for a dog. Oh, they're doing dog, a photographic suit. Yeah, <laughs> in amongst the grasses. <laughs> but yeah, so you know this is the thing, and this is one of our outlets during lockdown really was it yeah, yeah. so you yeah. can walk all along the river here can't you you can i mean side. you can walk i mean you go down here towards whopping you know the central whopping and then down the old london docks towards um st catherine's dock and tower bridge yeah. um and and then you know you've got the tower and so on and so forth yeah. So yeah. Um, yeah. It's huge. I had no when we come through the gate. There, yeah, it's you completely. You don't expect it to be such a big. Completely park, surprising, isn't it? isn't it? Yeah. Yes. And, the, and then there's a church at the end here as well. Yeah. I mean, this. Uh, it's um. I can't tell you the name of it. Um, it's St George's, I think, but I don't know that okay. for sure. Um, but um, I again, it's senior moment. Um, but they're all rent churches basically. Yes. Um, I think anyway. Uh, and um the ring on Hawksmoor. Uh should know, should have this. Are we gonna walk past tongue. it, Will, Will? No, we're gonna go so what we're gonna do is we're gonna we're gonna leave this park and go under the road and then we're gonna walk through the back streets towards the Regent's Canal. Oh great, okay. And and then we'll cross that and we'll come to uh, Mile End Park. Yep. And then through that towards the Tower Hamlet Cemetery. Okay. Uh, which is Cemetery oh, Park now, walk. actually. So sort of really nice little, again, complete, uh, complete sanctuary during lockdown. <laughs> it's nice that we have. I mean, that was the one of the beauty of London, is it has so many different parks and green lungs that suddenly a lot of people have realised is on their doorstep. You know, yeah, they have exactly. got somewhere that they can get out and certainly yeah. around our area too. That. Yeah, absolutely. Even small areas, you know. Yeah, I mean, it really makes a difference to, you know, you do feel, so you do develop this kind of connection with, I think, I suppose that's, you know, we've been living here for eight years when the lockdown started, but I think, I think um, you do get to know it much more when you're bound to stay around here, really. Yes, yeah, yeah, for, for sure. Uh, however long it was in that first, certainly during the first phase of the, the pandemic. Um, but we're going to go under here, uh, under the road. So oh, under right, here. You. Okay. And God, I can't remember the name of the churches. It's ridiculous. I know these. <laughs> I know all these churches so well. Don't worry. It's don't just worry. My, my brain. We'll just you know, it's just like I couldn't remember the last line of the poem. I mean, it's <laughs> the one that I received. I mean, how could I not remember that? <laughs> so this is the other thing. Is in London is full of these underpasses, isn't it? There's yeah. Summer. Summer. Uh, a bit dodgy, but a bit uh, scruffy. This one. A bit scruffy, 
Um, this is where, you know, the sort of, it's good in the parks not to have people mowing the lawn every five minutes, but yeah. could do with the refuse, go with the brush coming down yeah, here sweep up. Yeah, once in definitely. a while. Uh, <laughs> you know, you've got kind of cake packages and wrappers and various things around here. It's just... The wind blows things around, the foxes move things around yeah, as well. It's all absolutely, sorts, it's all a bit. <laughs> and we're going to go, you know, we come to the sort of, there'll be this roar coming up now as we go up the up the, the ramp here towards the highway and we'll soon get away from it so that noise will disappear uh, as we turn right at the end of this ramp okay. and up towards you know, up towards Poplar. So this is one of the arterial routes out of London, is it? Yeah, I mean it's quite interesting because this is, you know, the highway is like one of them, it's the main route from the east end, there through the old east end. Yeah. You go under the Limehouse Tunnel that was only built in 1993. Um, so that, the, the Limehouse Tunnel takes this road under the under the Limehouse Basin, which is where the Regent's Canal used to come out. One of the main sort of waterways of London. Yes. And it used to the base, the Limehouse Basin, used to be very, very industrial as recently as the early 1980s, really. Mm -hmm. uh, I didn't realise it was that recent. So. Yeah, I mean, and it was a it's a zone of considerable decay and depression and so on at the time, because you know, really, no one wants to live there. But no. with Canary Wharf, uh, it all started rebounding. Um, you know, the whole area got a bit of a boost from that. Um, just, as you can see now, it's quite mixed. I mean, it's a lot of there's a lot of um, public housing. Yeah in uh, in these boroughs you know so that's either right if in, if you're in scotland you say glam's estate but here yeah you probably say glamis do you yeah glamis and there's a there's a just on the right here uh i think there's an adventure playground which is a oh, wow. not very many of those left these oh. days this started you know the adventure playground movement in the 70s and oh, i actually visited this place a few years ago with a friend whose father was the founder of the adventure playground movement which was really big in britain in the 70s and yeah. has um, declined because, mainly because of health and safety stuff you know people worried about kids breaking their arms and legs yeah, all that, yeah all that stuff uh so that it's not so i don't know how they managed to deal with all that uh, uh but they do and so fortunately it still it still survives very heavy uh sort of Bangladeshi, Somali communities here. Mm -hmm. uh, very, uh, it's a zone of, you know, it was an immigration zone really from the late 1990s yeah. in particular. Um, so uh, have you got some good restaurants this, that's reflecting decent, that food? Well, not, not, not as much as you might hope, really. Mm -hmm. uh, I must say, I mean, you know, Limehouse itself remains a little bit depressed, I mean, we're going to go up through here, but um, down there is Shadwell, yeah, uh, which must be one of the most, you know, sort of Muslim areas of London. Actually, uh, you see a lot of uh, women around here in full burqas. Do you? Yeah. yeah. And gosh, in the London heat. Yeah. When it is hot. Absolutely. That must be, it's I think so that's, uncomfortable. That's kind of the issue that it's the the. This is not a very integrated immigrant community, really, in that, in the sense that 
you know, so the, the cultural diversity that you'd expect. Yeah. Um, and you see elsewhere in the city, you know, if you think about Brixton in the 1960s, 70s, 80s, when it began to really flourish as a, a sort of culturally more diverse area of the city. Yes. It's not really happened here. And I'm not 100%, I don't know why that's happened. I, I don't happens, know why that yes. is really. I mean. So these buildings here, the Coburg dwellings, that's another, looks like some more social housing. I think that's probably, yeah, probably housing. So like oh, there's a thing over there, it tells you what they are. Peabody Trust? It could easily be, yeah, Coburg dwellings, yeah, so you should see. Yeah, oh, nurses, nurses company, company, right? Yeah, so oh, it is Germany, social housing. Where Prince Albert, the cousin. So named in favour of celebrating Prince Albert. Yeah, I mean, they're lovely, sort of strongly built. Yeah, I mean, the interesting, the interesting thing about this area is, I think in the 19th century, there's something called the Ratcliffe Highway that ran uh, through this, this east to west road. Yeah. And, uh, you know, you can tell from folk songs of that era that, you know, Prince Albert was a venerated figure. I mean, the, traditionally, you know, the working class in East London is very, very royalist. You saw that. Mm -hmm. We saw the, the remnants of that working class. Most of it, of course, decamped to further east. Yes, yeah. In the past 50 years, really, towards Essex. Um, but um, there's still substantial white working class population that remains here. You saw it come out during the uh, Jubilee celebrations oh, did you two weekends here, ago. Yeah. Yeah. Yes. So well, what happened in this area? For, oh, were there, you, were, there were street parties, um, I mean, all over the place, really. Yeah. It was very, very busy indeed. And, you know, in Wapping itself, you know, quite a big one where you had, you know, sort of quite diverse as well. It wasn't just the white working class were there, that lots of people were there from, you know, both diverse class, race, yeah. etc. And we had uh, the music pleasure, and food to music and that. food <laughs> and all the rest of it. Yeah. And pubs made a roaring trade and Helen Mirren, who lives locally, was there. Yes. And gave a very accomplished little cameo performance oh, yeah just sort of just having her selfies taken and stuff but yeah. photos taken people taking selfies with her yes. not her selfies obviously <laughs> she doesn't need to so we're going to come up through this towards towards commercial road okay so this is called hardinger or hardinger way or something yeah i don't know quite what the origins of all this are it's, you can see it's a kind of pretty scruffy yeah just sort of scruffy kind of decaying hard. kind of area it's not you know you just feel that there's no real, there's no really, not a very strong public sense around here about. Uh, it's old meeting new, but it's all sort of. Um, oops, oops uh, let's go that way, yeah. Old meeting new, and it's all sort of. It's, it's kind of one of those kind of, together. it's one of those areas, I think, in London that Ian Sinclair, you know, in his lights out at the, in, for the territory or, what, or the bookie, you know, the famous piece of travel writing. Do you know that? Uh, uh, Lights out for the territory. No, I haven't read that. It's, he kind of does this journey from Hackney through through the East End and, and is fascinated by these places that are patchwork quilts to different kinds of influences and yeah. you can kind of identify, you know, he, he likes to identify psychological, if you like, or sociological fault lines more kind of psychic actually in a way because he, he calls himself a psychic geographer oh does he yeah okay 
Um, I think it's psychic geography, yeah. Uh, I'll, I'll check that. Um, See, look at these, because these buildings here, sorry. Uh, yeah. Uh, sorry, just got, yeah. you back on the wire. Uh, the old terraced yeah. blocks here, like old, um, built for factory workers or something. Yeah, like I think that's sort of. right. I mean, there were, there was, this is, this is a very industrialized part of the East End. Yeah. Um, and these, these buildings, these, this type of, this type of housing was absolutely shattered by the blitz. There's a lot okay. of bomb damage here because you know, they were flight, this is when, you know, this uh, during 1940, late 40, 41. Yeah. You know, London took such a big hit because of the docks. So the, this, e this part of the East End was really transformed. Yeah. And so you get this, there's public housing, a lot of public housing that yeah. replaced it. Uh, and you can see a lot of it dates from the early 50s, maybe. Some of it, some yeah, of it later. Some later 60s, 70s. 70s, I don't, I mean, that to me looks like more like, but. You know, I mean, it's kind of a real kind of mix of, that seems to be quite ill-planned, you know? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, these are very interesting old yeah, ones, Yeah, I mean, these they? are, like, there's like, kind of like a bit of gentrification around here, mm -hmm. but it's, I think it's kind of, it's very difficult for it to kind of get any kind of head of steam. Yeah. And the, the reason for that, I think, is that this area is um, divided by three transport routes. So there's, there's, the railway, which is, you know, the, 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 that railway there, which is, carries the DLR and the overground line to um, Limehouse. Yes. And then there's the highway we crossed earlier on. Yep. And then here, there's, you know, there's Commercial Road. Okay, so we're coming which off is, Devonport Street. So we're going, to... this is another east-west road. Yeah. And we are going over towards Arbor Square, which is another one of those um, of those um, semi-gentrified bits of bits of territory around here. Yeah. Um, and you know, over over the other side of the road is a a splendid uh, Turkish kind of grocer's shop, which has probably the best selection of vegetables and that you can find in this area oh, and yeah. if we can be bothered this is where we come it's not too far a walk a couple no, of minutes no not too so. far yeah. it's it's a bit of a haul but it's not too far so whoops sorry about <laughs> that i'm sort of leaping away sorry okay. are we all right, all right. yeah we're fine yeah. Yeah, so, so we're so just waiting to cross over so commercial road and this is um halal butcher there we go fresh yeah fresh fruit and veg organic products vegan products yeah Everything. And you can pick up really good stuff like really good aubergines yeah. and melons and stuff here, you know, sort of uh, watermelons. Okay. Really excellent quality stuff. Yeah, and nothing wrapped in plastic. Yes. And then up through here. Arbor Square. Here we Arbor go. Square. Off commercial Road. Uh, so, yeah. Um, it's like an architect's dream walking around well, here. Well, there's kind of like, yeah, I mean, you could you could do a lot with this, couldn't you, in yeah. a way, if you were going to be, um, um, in terms of the, you know, the sort of getting into more into this, if I was to do the homework and stuff. Yeah. yeah but, yeah. Uh, yeah, we go, go across here. Um, we're going a bit of a long way around, really. I just, because okay. bringing you around through, through the park, yeah. We could have gone, I mean, we'll go back an easier route. Um, so Arbor Square actually does have a lovely garden in the centre of it. Yeah. And so you've got the older, almost Georgian style yeah. 
buildings Absolutely. on one side or houses and then you've got social housing on the other side yeah and then what looks like some kind of peabody truss oh no it's a college could be a, yeah it could be an old there. school or something yeah. is it or i suspect ew city college tower Hamlets. right is that a school or a secondary whatever it college. was in the past yeah so we we're gonna go up through here okay and the connection of course with brazil around here is kind of hard to divine actually i mean is there, sure. a big, is there actually a big Brazilian community. Not in this, in this part area, of London, no. I mean, there is, there is a, there are a lot of Brazilians in London. Yeah. Um, a lot of, I mean, there are quite a lot of Brazilians in the areas like Queen's Park and Kensal Rise and so on. Mm -hmm. You know, off the Bakerloo line there. And yep. around Vauxhall, I mean, there's Portuguese around. There's Portuguese in, yeah, in Vauxhall. Uh, there's Portuguese restaurants in Stockwell, Vauxhall. Yeah, some very good restaurants. Yeah. Um, but, yeah, I mean, this area, I'm, at least I've not come across a great number, apart from, <laughs> you know, the ones who come to visit us. Yeah, yes. Which are many. You see, yeah, these are kind of, these are sort of these Georgian yes. uh, terraces, which is slight, you know, slightly, it seems to be slightly more upmarket than just typical, you know, northern style terrace houses, you know. Yeah. Got a very grand, um, Entrance Entrances, doors, so yeah. archway round, and yes. sort of little, you know, sort of balconies up top and yeah. so. Yeah, yeah, it's very appealing, aren't they? Yeah. It's almost like still, like still run down. Yeah, but there's, so, poten but there's potentially. A lot of money. I think you could. I think these are good. You know, this is the sort of thing that. You know, they'd be looking to. This kind of housing stock would be quite valuable in other parts of the city. Yeah. 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 But it's not really taken off here. Not yet. <laughs> not yet. It's no, like we've been waiting for that. Yeah. I mean, I, I wrote a piece um, about Lighthouse. I think I was talking about earlier on about five, six years ago, and you know, it's quite interesting looking into land values in Limehouse compared to only a half a mile further west, and it mm -hmm. was much more, much higher. You know, and I yeah. think part of that is the, say, the transport routes. Yes. Yeah and just the lack of the lack of gentrification you compare it to somewhere like shoreditch or you know which has come massively yeah, yeah. so expensive there now yeah yes but what's nice about the the social housing in all around this area it's very much three or four stories it's not big tower blocks so it's actually um yeah it's, it's not it's, it doesn't feel very ghetto-ish does no, it no 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 it feels just very a part of you could even be in sweden or somewhere like that yeah style of uh, architecture yeah absolutely so i was thinking with with the book um yeah so you, you've entitled it God, I just forgot the title. beef bible and bullets oh yeah beef bible and bullets and you named the book to represent uh three very uh, sort of tranches of of uh belief systems or, or, or yeah or, or uh, political angles that that make up I mean, Brazil? in Brazil itself, I mean, the beef, Bible and bully, most people think you're talking about congressional lobbies. And these are uh, deputies and senators in Brazil. Brazil's got uh, two houses in its legislature. And um, deputies and senators who represent three separate interests. 
One is the interests of the agribusiness community. Mm -hmm. right. Farming and farming and you know meat packers and so on. Yeah. She's a very important part of Brazil's export mix. Um, the second is the the Bible is the really the, the sort of the more the more conservative end of the Christian community. Yeah. And in particular, the Protestant evangelicals who are congregated in the Pentecostal churches. Yeah, this is this really surprised me. I had no idea that there was yeah. such a, uh, Big a following. Community of, yeah, yeah. I mean, yeah. Just to sort of sort of so, forty years ago, you know, Brazil had one in. Uh, 20 people were Protestants and now it's one in three, maybe, and rising. Incredible. Why is that away from Catholicism? Yeah, uh, I mean, I'll, I'll go and I'll talk about that. I mean, yeah. the th just to finish off yes, though, the, the, yeah. the basic framework for this, which is the third is security, right? Yeah. So the security lobby are people who, for one way or another, support a hard line against crime and don't go along with what they would describe as liberal, you know, sort of NIMBY, NIMBY NAMBYs kind of, uh, who, who want to go soft with criminals. Yeah, and basically, so they believe in the guns and yes. shoot to kill. Policy. Yeah, they want people to have guns, they want to shoot to kill, they want the police to be have make more use of their powers. Yeah. And um, of course, a lot of these people are, in fact, military poli uh, policemen. Um, mm. And, of, and there are many policemen in Brazil, there are different police forces, but um, the military police is by far the, the largest of the police forces, about half a million members. And, you know, they've, they're a big interest group. Right. Um, and of course, all these, these lobbies may have started off, you know, sort of wanting, you know, softer environmental controls for, you know, so you can go soya on, wider parts or for Christian groups they'd want you know they want to they're against the decriminalization of homophobia for example it's a very big issue for them and for the, the gun lobby you know they want to make it easier to carry guns and they want to make policemen less you know we ease the restrictions that limit the, the freedom of action of policemen Right. So there's all those, that, but, but of course this has all become much bigger than that. So the Bolsonaro's supporters, probably about one in three people I would say are Bolsonaro's supporters, fairly, that really hardcore yes. is probably smaller than that, probably more like uh, between one and two out of ten, I should think, are hardcore Bolsonaro fans. People like my mother-in-law. But you know, you ask a question about the evangelicals and i think that's quite a good place to start talking about the politics of all this yeah and just religion really isn't it so the, yeah the rise and fall in different parts of the world almost like yeah brazil is really well uh, i mean brazil's not been immune from broader international trends so there is growing secularism <laughs> in brazil and although people are you know majority of people are notionally catholics they really are notional and are not practicing in any sense my wife and i'll cross herself that She's on a plane or something, but she never goes to a Catholic church or yeah. doesn't doesn't really didn't even get married in a church. I was you say, know? Did you get married in a? You know, so it's kind of and this is uh, 
Oh, okay, so we just reached Stepney nice High Street. Yeah. Oh, we're, we're schools coming out, yeah. yeah. <laughs> so we, um, yeah, let's cross over. We all. might. Should we go down to the pedestrian? Yeah, sure, let's do that. Yeah. Yeah. No! Moaned down uh, vehicles, all by school kids. <laughs> so, yeah, I mean, the, the church, so why has it grown? So I think it's really a result of the failure of the Catholic Church in some senses to respond fast enough to what's going on on the ground. So for many poorer people who have been, you know, these poor communities that have, that yeah, there? yeah, uh, these com communities that are big, I mean, big, big, you know, this just a sort of a in parenthesis here, essentially Brazil since the Second World War has seen extraordinary urbanization. Mm -hmm. You know, you've gone from a predominantly agricultural economy to one that's predominantly urban. Just as has happened, in a way, in Western Europe and the United States in the late 19th century. Yeah. I mean, my own town, Sheffield, grew from 100 to 500,000 in 50 years in the okay. second half of the 19th century. And you've seen a similar pace of, of urbanization in Brazil. Right. The problem is that whereas in, in, in Europe and the States, that urban population went to moved into jobs mainly in the industrial sector that didn't happen in brazil so jobs were hard to find for many new urban migrants yeah and they ended up in the, living and working in the informal economy on the edge of brazilian cities right and that's how you got this ex extraordinary growth in favelas you know these informal urban settlements on the edge of cities very often sometimes yeah. not sometimes as in rio they're quite central. Yes, I visited one or a couple actually right. there with through an NGO. Just extraordinarily huge, like labyrinths of exactly, of, of, yeah, another system with shops and everything. Yeah, extremely I mean, it's just poor though. Completely alternative form of development. Yeah, and um, the, the other aspect of this in Brazil that's extremely important is that you had, as I said before, earlier on today, you know, this move um, from poor northeastern states towards the Amazon yes uh, under a program of state-sponsored migration where the military government in particular it started before them with the governments in the 50s and 60s yes but the military really turbocharged that policy um, and they had a program where it was a land without people or rather people without land yep. for a land without people yeah the old Zionist slogan and so between 1960 and 2010 in other words in 50 years the Amazon's population increased from two and a half million to something like 25 million people my goodness uh, and a lot of those people huge isn't it yeah and and these people you know, went into the Amazon, they, the, the, the military encouraged that by building roads, mm -hmm. several thousand kilometers long, these roads, through the Amazon. Uh, different, you know, east, west, north, south. Yeah. And in the process, displacing the indigenous people in those areas? Or yeah, were, I mean, very, were they Very were often they, they were kind of, it was, it was simply displacing trees, but yeah. obviously it left indigenous populations exposed to potential problems and the problem is there's another step in between because what these populations did was they 
got involved in various kinds of activities. First, they cut down trees and um, on the pasture they created, they raised cattle and sold them. Yep. Got involved in various different activities, speculating in land, logging. Sometimes they burn the trees, sometimes they cut them down, sold them. Sometimes people cut down the trees because they got into, they, they were attracted by the mining reserves that were, they, that were underneath the trees. Okay. So there was huge exploitation, particularly in the, well, there's been, it's a long term historical process, this of, it's called Garimpeiro in Brazil. It took off in Brazil in 1980 in its most recent phase when there's a mine called Serra Pelada, which is in in the Amazonas. And I don't know if you remember the incredible photographs yes, by Sebastião Salgado. Yeah, incredible and uh, horrifying at the same time. Yeah, the, I mean, absolutely. Of the ladders going yeah. so deep into the mine. And just yeah. on every rung, there was a young person or yeah. an old person carrying gold um, yeah gold. gold ore it would be yeah, yeah. and, and that's just, this is like you know this is a get rich quick thing it's you know for poor people this was a ticket to prosperity and success so, so it became a big thing and that of course led eventually to clashes with indigenous groups who have been protected in Brazil the differing degrees of success, but there is some protection. But that came into question. I mean, there was serious clashes between Garimperos, illegal miners, and the Yanomani group in the late 1980s that was documented by a British journalist, whose name I've forgotten, can you know? <laughs> um, Don't worry, we'll oh, put it in the show notes. Anyway, yeah, <laughs> uh, by a British journalist who, um, God, it's terrible. I, mean, I can't believe I've forgotten that. Anyway, um, and you know, there were cl enormous clashes and a lot of international pressure mm -hmm. gradually building up to defend those indigenous groups. And so really stuff like Survival International, you know, one of the main NGOs for yes. indigenous communities was started in part in, as, a, as a result of that Norman Lewis's reporting. <laughs> Sorry, I should have. Norman Lewis. Norman okay, Lewis. Yes. Uh, in the Sunday Times, you know, quite famous pieces he wrote in the 80s. Yes. And um, that was a big moment. And then right at the beginning of the 90s, we had the first real movement around environmentalism. Um, okay. You know, this is the first talk of global warming. Yes. I mean, I remember this because I was, I was writing about insurance for the FT at the time in the late 80s, an FT newsletter. And I wrote stories about how, you know, global warming in the late 80s, as early as that, was leading to changes in hurricane patterns and, um, okay. you know, extreme weather events and was attracting the interest of companies that insured against the damage. Right. Right, so it's becoming, it's on people's agenda that this is a big issue. Yes. Um, and you had, you know, throughout the 90s, you know, a lot of reporting of, of how the forest was being burned down, how this process of development was incredibly damaging, not just to Brazil, but to the world. Mm -hmm. 
and, and, and they're beginning to get clashes between those people who, you know, made a living in the Amazon. Yes. Uh, especially the smaller guys who are more desperate and the international community. It must have been, I mean, if you think about it, it must be very confusing for those who were at one point encouraged to go and live in the Amazon, you know, and, and find land and work and have agriculture and create a living and, and something for themselves without yeah. having to move and, and add greater demands on the city. And yeah. then suddenly they're the bad cops. They're the bad cops, yeah. Uh, and in fact, uh, and yeah, you're I, absolutely I, right. It must be very, very tough for them to, right, you, you encourage us and now and you don't want us to be here. But I suppose some are still good people uh, who are there just trying to survive like we all are through life. Yeah. And, and then there are others who've been um, swept into corruption, crime, yeah. narcotics, Absolutely. Uh, illegal yeah. fishing and logging and all the other things that are going on. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I, I in fact, um, it's a good point. I mean, I, in, in, in one of my chapters in my book, I interviewed a, I was up in Roraima, which is a, one of Brazil's most, I think it's probably the northernmost state, quite a tiny state population-wise, but huge number of indigenous reserves there. I yes. Think. And a very active illegal mining movement. I talked to and interviewed the, uh, the leader, the man who had been leader of the Garimperos, a been a big supporter of Bolsonaro. And he, his life, it just ran across the Amazon. He was from a poor northeastern state in mm -hmm. Maranhão. Parents had, you know, sort of been poor farmers growing beans and rice and whatever. Um, probably beans and cassava actually but and and they he'd you know sort of gone to the first logging projects in the Amazon at the Jari reserve which was in in the um, this is a entirely legal project yes you know the government allowed this to happen it's a big American um, loggers um, he'd learned to use a chainsaw right and become extremely adept and skilled at it and it was seen at the time as being, you know, a tremendous physical feat, as being yeah. a feat of bravery and courage and and, and dexterity. Yes, yeah, and of course. So he was describing how, you know, they were seen as being great heroes for this achievement, managing the chainsaw. And, you know, he'd then been attracted to the riches of Serra Palada. He'd, he'd become a, you know, this would be 10, 15 years later, he'd become a, a garimpero. And so he, he traversed the Amazon back and forth, really, in search of employment and riches, and it ended up in Huaraima and led the Garimperos during this clash with the Yanomami. Mami. Right. And he, you know, he hated the indigenous, and he hated, he hated environmentalism. Yeah. He, he would barely, I mean, it's lucky, it's amazing we got him to talk to me, actually, because, <laughs> you know, he didn't like international journalists, and... I was thinking about this when Dom met this, Dom Phillips, probably yeah. met similar kind of guys, but yeah. they were, you know, um, much more explosive situation for yes, yes. reason we can talk about. But so, yeah, I mean, this was these clashes and what eventually led to, you know, the, 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 these guys support Bolsonaro. I mean, the big agriculturalists used to support Bolsonaro too, right? Because they were, you know, the big soya growers, big cattle ranchers used to support 
that kind of policy, not Bolsonaro, but they used to support um, a kind of anti-environmental stance. Yes. But they don't do that as much now. And the reason for that is that they realize that if they're going to keep exporting their product, they can't afford to be so negative about green issues. Right, right. And so the bigger, better capitalized farming groups have wised up. Yes. And they're, it's very divided, the agricultural community. There are lots, some farmers still who hate the environmentalists, some quite big farmers, some of whom I met. And who have, some farmers have, you know, think the, don't mind, but they think the agencies that police environmentalism are, 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 are inefficient and erratic in their judgments and uh, run vendettas, you know, so they are, they're, they're against them, not because they're against environmentalism per se, but because they want, they think the system's bad. Yeah. Um, and they too voted for Bolsonaro in 2018. So it's a mixed bag, really, of interests. Um, and, you know, the, the, the sort of, all these three groups, though, uh, they all sometimes combine, you know, you get areas of the Amazon um, where the evangelical church is strong, and they, they tend to be these kind of more remote areas, mm -hmm. because they, the evangelical church is quicker to respond to new populations, and it's less bureaucratic than the Catholic Church. Right. You know, a, yeah. a, a sociologist I talked to for the book told me that in a week, the first week, uh, the first day of a new community emerging, you know, there'd be one Pentecostal church. By the end of the week, there'd be five. By the end of the first year, there'd be one Catholic church. Okay, you know, so, so it's, it's moving sort of, much slower. In a it's much slower because they don't. They, it's a it's a, it's much more bureaucratic. Or is it? Is there also kind of a thinking, or, or relax is probably the wrong word, but or belief that they are will be naturally be Catholic, and have not quite woken up to the fact that there's now, for want of a better word, competition out there for, well, for religious think, belief. I think there's possibly a certain amount of complacency. I mean. The Catholic Church, of course, is aware of the growth of um, Protestantism, and it, it realised it's losing its market. And, and there is a there is an evangelical movement within Catholicism yeah. that tries to combat that. It's more effective, to be fair, amongst better off Brazilians, right? Particularly younger, better off Brazilians. Yeah, yeah. There's a, something called the Charismatic Movement. Um, they have. But essentially, the great thing about the Protestant church, and particularly these uh, home the various brands of homegrown Pentecostal churches, is that they're extremely receptive to these marginal groups. And some of them, you know, very good at offering social assistance of various kinds, you know, whether it's training or you know, social welfare or, mm -hmm. um, they all, in, at the same time, they also take considerable fees from these people yes. in the form of tithes and they're, they're money machines and they, they sell, they sell miracles, essentially a myth. They sell the idea of, you know, the idea of social progress and sometimes social mobility, I should say, not social progress. They sell that idea yes. and a lot of the time if you're in a 
evangelical church, you're more likely to meet, you know, sort of like a dentist or a lawyer or a doctor who'll do stuff for you. They have a, a lot of the churches on a Saturday, they'll have gatherings where their better off members will come and offer services for free. Right. You know, sort of like, um, I mean, I, I met one of them in a sort of a slight fringe Methodist church in Uberlandia and they, you know, they have a dental surgery and they have, they have children's art rooms where, and they have um, literacy classes and teaching, you know, support for the kids that uh, need extra help and so on. So you it's know, quite a strong social network then, yeah. social, social in terms of a health network, I suppose, health yeah, I mean, mental just, health. Yeah, I mean, network. just a support thing, you know, that you just feel that a lot of the time in poor areas, there's, there's only two organisations that matter. There's the organised crime gang mm -hmm. that offers you a solution in the sense of take part in what we do, which is usually drugs or extortion or something and we'll you know see you okay it's kind of yeah. a job or there's the evangelical church okay so there's a there's a you kind of choose you kind of choose yeah and, and the brazilian state although it's quite large it's very ineffective in more remote areas they're just not present yeah. except in a repressive capacity so that the police will go in occasionally to go after bad guys but they, they, there's no there's not a constant presence very often in these areas there's no real sign of the state being there at all. Yeah. And has this got worse under Bolsonaro, in your opinion? I, um, mean, is it, is I it think just... this, is, this is really... I, I'm not sure is the answer to that. I, I, I suspect, you know, the natural course of events, it probably has, but it's not... I think what's definitely got worse is the, you know, the situation in the more remote Amazon, because there, there's been a deliberate weakening of state agencies that are were set up to control deforestation like and FUNAI, protect indigenous groups like FUNAI, yeah. like uh, IBAMA, which is a part of the environmental in, uh, ministry and you know an environmental control agency, like um, ICM Bio, which is a there to protect national parks, and, and all these groups had many more staff and more power you know they have protection they had they had weapons yes uh before and now they've been denuded of all these things and they're really under pressure yeah yeah so you know bruno Pereira had been working you know senior position at funai until bolsonaro took over and then you know left the organization i mean so he was trying to continue his work with the indigenous groups yes but not with the state but with an ngo yeah and so for, as far as, well, so the whole, the fact that Bruno Pereira and Dom Phillips were there together when they went off uh, into the river was probably, partially they were helping each other yeah. on, a on the project. Um, uh, and they couldn't be, well, they couldn't be protected, but they also couldn't tell anybody because they're under pressure to, to do their work almost surreptitiously for fear of being yeah, killed. I think, I think, I think in, in this particular case with, um, with Bruno and Dom's trip to uh, Atalado Nachi and, and, and the Valle do Javari, I think what had happened was that 
basically Bruno had been, as I understand it, uh, Bruno had been working with local indigenous groups to protect the reserves from incursions from uh, garimperos and illegal poachers mm -hmm. and so on. And he'd, he'd done that because the state itself could no longer protect those groups, so they had to protect themselves. Right. So the argument was that, yeah, you, you guys, if you guys are going to deprive us of funding, we can't do our jobs, we're going to have to do it ourselves. Yeah. You know, so the mission of FUNAI had basically been abandoned by, by Bolsonaro and his supporters and his ministers. And they had to, and, and, and it's specifically about, I think this idea of self-defense is, you know, they were taking on the guys who were, you know, the organized crime gangs. I mean, they were basically saying they were disrupting their trade. Yes. Yeah. And I think as soon as they did that, they, they become targeted. Yes. One thing you can, you can guarantee in Brazil is that organized crime there is extremely potent. Um, it runs large areas of the country. Mm -hmm. They are multi, you know, the the, the national groups and some cases international international connections. Yes, and they 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 were unhappy about the way these many frequent clashes between organised crime and the state or anyone else who's going to interfere with their process of accumulation mm -hmm. and. You see that not just in Brazil, but you see it across the world and organized crime is becoming more and more powerful yeah, yes. in the world uh, as the state becomes weaker yes. and policing becomes less effective. Yes. And now when you look at the size of Brazil anyway, I mean, yeah. how you manage that anyway, <laughs> exactly. on a normal day, uh, yeah. I mean, it's huge, isn't it? It's yeah. a huge project all by itself. To, yeah, to quite. And unless you've got all the community engaged in in wanting to uh, and you know the thing is that these these, these indigenous groups are you know their populations are quite small yeah. there may be many different ethnic groups but you know they're, they're really small numbers and so their capacity to defend themselves is quite limited yes yes um, of course the other thing that bolsonaro has been doing which has led to a deterioration is that he's freed up the ability of anyone in Brazil to buy weapons okay. and so there are more weapons around now yeah and this is this has been fairly well documented it you know so the situation in that sense has got much worse I think do you think as a result of what's happened to Bruno Pereira and Don Phillips and other the, well whether the truth is coming out I don't, I don't, we don't know we don't really know what the truth is as such. Yeah. We only have some of the facts. But is this going to have a big impact on Brazilians? Is it going to have a big impact on Bolsonaro? Is it going to have a big impact on how the international community responds? Um, it's hard. I think, I, I'm not sure it's going to have a huge, I mean, I think it has had an impact, you know. Yes. It's a massive media story. Um, a lot of concern. Um, my fear is that it simply deepens existing divides and that you know people who support Bolsonaro will continue to believe that people like Dom and Bruno were up to no good and that's certainly you know I mean so that's why 
Fatima was so infuriated with her mother last night because she knows Dom, she knows who he is, she knows what a good guy he is. Yes. And they, she doesn't see it as they, they were there to try and protect the Amazon, protect the indigenous people and yeah, protect but, against you know, it's, the bad guys. Oh, she was just doing Brazil down, Brazil's doing so well, Bolsonaro is yeah. so good and these guys are just kind of mess things about, you know, mess things up. And I think a lot of Brazilians will feel like that. I mean, the problem is we're, we're now in a position where we're entering a, a, an election campaign between Bolsonaro, who's seeking his second term in office, and Lula, you know, the, the guy who was in charge from 2003 to 2011. Yes. And... That was written about quite quite a lot by uh, Peter Robb and A Death in Brazil. The, the, the Lula stuff. Yes, yeah. yeah. And he's, you know, Lula's, Lula's a controversial figure himself because he was in prison until 2019 because of corruption. Yes. Uh, alleged corruption, which is, you know, there's a lot of question marks about all that stuff. And many people would argue that he's, he was corrupt, but no more corrupt than uh, uh, politicians in Brazil typically are, and certainly no more corrupt than those now supporting Bolsonaro are. Okay. So you think that Lula is just as bad as well, Bolsonaro? No, I, I don't, actually. So I think the situation's very polarised, and I think Lula, at the moment, Lula's going to win, right? I and mean, he's, okay. he's been in the lead by, um, you know, by between 10 and 20 percentage points in polls for the first, Brazil's election takes place over two rounds. Yes. And the first round, there are many candidates take part. And the only ones who've got any kind of profile in the first round are Lula and Bolsonaro. So it's almost certain they'll progress to the second round to run off against each other. Yes. Uh, all the simulations in polls, and they've been, you know, as it ever in Brazil and most countries, but there are dozens of polls. And those would indicate that Lula will win by possibly as much as 20% in the second round. Okay, now, that's, a, that's a good majority, isn't it? Yeah, it's a good majority. The problem is, of course, that the election to Congress is unlikely to be anything like as clear cut. So Congress will be a mess. There'll be a lot of different groups, different parties, different politicians elected. And a lot of these people will basically sell their services to the highest bidder, essentially. Right. Um, and there are several parties in Brazil that are, that are be-all and end-all for them is, is what they can get out of it. Right. In terms of positions or jobs or uh, positions, jobs, money, you know. Yeah, yes. And it's very likely that Lula will have to deal with them. It's unlikely for his party, the Workers' Party, is going to have more than a fifth of lower house deputies. And it only had a fifth in 2003 when that government took office, right? But you know, this is a difficult time. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Because there's a lot to do, and you know, a lot of people will be very, cons very concerned to constrain Lula. Right. Uh, and does he have a very different policy? I mean, I know he did a lot in the past to to protect the Amazon with his, the way he structured things. With, and do you think he will try to re-emphasize that um, yeah, protection yeah. again? Yeah, I think there'll be a big emphasis from a new, a new Lula government would uh, 
put pretty high near near the top of its agenda, if not the top of its agenda, environmental policy, uh, because they know that there are several reasons for that. One, they can redirect spending towards some of these agencies that have been so badly hit. So there's mm -hmm. an infrastructure that's still there, and people like Bruno Pereira, who've been kicked out of their jobs elsewhere, it can be reintegrated. Um, two, there's extraordinary international support for that. Right. Um, and there's extraordinary American support for that. So for Biden's administration, you know, green policy is a priority. And you could imag imagine rebuilding a progressive approach towards Brazil around green issues. Three, I think the private sector, because of, you know, this emphasis in, uh, you know, corporate world on ESG, environmental, socially, you know, corporate governance and so on, yes. is is so strong now they they like it too uh they okay. you know now you know i think that's all all points towards they can do stuff i think uh if 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 lula wins and i i think the problem is that brazil's we're probably going to be entering a world recession next year yeah um i don't know what it's going to mean for commodity prices and you know brazil's still quite dependent on it's commodity exports and what that means to Brazil's overall stability, you know, it's a lot, there's a lot of demands on Lula to improve things. A lot of people have had a really rough time. Yes. Not just because of fairly limp economic growth, but because of, you know, especially because of COVID really. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And I think they're wanting, they're wanting a change. Um, yeah. So I d it's hard to say, this is going to be quite a, you know, not as easy as don't want to make it seem easy because it won't be but i think there's uh there are some ground you know i think there's at the moment it looks as though lula could win or will win i should say and it, and it looks as though he'd be green issues will be top of the agenda it, it's it's not guaranteed though no no of course not yeah it's a it's it's going to be a fairly troubled time across the world for, for everybody year. i think next oh, yeah. year so People have got their heads in the sand about it, but we'll yeah. see. I mean, I, yeah, I think. As we walk around, we're actually this is, in. Yeah. I'm just realising it's literally cheek by jowl headstones. Yeah. This is this is a cemetery that it's started incredible. in 1837, I think, after a cholera epidemic. Right. And it it was closed in 1966, year of the World Cup, victory for England. <laughs> and England's and the wet, the East End's contribution to that, you know, was mm -hmm. very strong. But anyway, here we are, uh, and this is this is now being converted into a, a park by yeah. Tower Hamlets, and you know, lots of wildflowers. Yeah. And um, it's really beautiful. It's got a nice sort of decaying feel about it. It hasn't does. It? it does. It's yeah. It's really lovely with the, just the sunlight coming through the trees. They just let it. Yeah. really go wild haven't they but yeah. not totally wild but with pathways going through and yeah so I, I would i would come here you know sort of pretty much over the last couple of years throughout the lockdown certainly uh, it's one of my regular uh, haunts um so if people wanted to find it coming from the center of london where's the nearest so you, that's a good question actually um because we've walked we've walked from basically from Wapping, we've walked 
We've walked through past St Dunstan's Churchyard in um, Stepney. We were walking through Stepney and we walked through Mile End Park. That's right, yes, that was lovely as so well. So Mile End Park. might be the nearest tube station, actually. Um, but Mile End... Where people can find these things on their, on their phones these days. Yeah, so that's right. So you that's don't have right. to give but the information. This is not, but it is a, it's, it's a weird kind of... And there are there exit points at every corner? There's like, there's half a dozen exit points around the park. Yeah. Um, yeah, and he, I suspect that Marlene, I'm just going to check, because I, I should know that, where the nearest station is. Oh yeah, there is, look. There's Marlene Station. Okay. We're just very near there. So we are, we're here, and Marlene Station's there, so it's actually... So it's, the, it's actually the exact about name of five minutes of the away. Cemeteries, Mile End Cemetery Park. No, this is called Tower Hamlet Cemetery like Park. Tower Hamlets Cemetery And Park. it is no more than eight minutes walk. Eight minutes walk, perfect. Well, it's actually probably less than this, probably more like four minutes walk from Marlin Station. Okay. Yeah. See, some Four of minutes walk, Martin Station. Definitely a great place to come. Yeah, that's so much writing on there. You could come and do. You know, some people come and do like um, gravestone rubbings, don't they? Yeah. To get the names. Of yeah, it's got an incredibly kind of eerie kind of feel about yeah. it. Yeah. Look at this one. Like the wind and the rains just completely yeah. etched, etched the face yeah. off it. Very kind of Dickensian, almost. You know. Um, well, it is Dickensian, frankly, not it almost. Is a paradise. It's completely Dickensian. Yeah. That's lovely. So, with your book, for yeah. somebody somebody looking to learn a bit more about Brazil, it really helps to set that stage and gives you a really rounded and balanced. Um, yeah, I should I should say I should, tell me a bit. without banging on about it, yeah. I should add one thing to yes. the equation, which is one of the things I also do is explain how Brazil, after electing Lula in two thousand and two, and after Lula's rather promising start, you know, Brazil came off the rails, and why you know the, the, I, I talk about the recession of the mid two thousand and tens when there was a very serious recession, and I talk about. Um, nice bit of reggae in the park. Yeah. <laughs> and, I, and I talk about um, the corruption scandal. They're happy. Yeah, so, the corruption scandal of the of the which is, you know, became, I mean, partially because of the scale of Brazil's improvement under Lula. Yes. And, the, you know, Brazil discovered very extensive oil deposits in 2006. So it suddenly became a very hot property and there was a lot of money invested. Um, and, you know, it really kind of transformed uh, I mean, a lot, of the, a lot of the corruption was centred on the state-owned oil company, Petrobras. Yes. And um, that was exposed by this uh, very controversial investigation, which eventually led to Lula's imprisonment in 2018. Yeah, I was reading this. It's car the car wash scandal. Yeah, car wash That's scandal. So yeah. many people were... Yeah, were, it, um, it, it blasted open a pattern of 
corruption and patronage and you know it was it, it was momentous uh, of course it, it, it ran into the sand like Italy's investigation in the early 1990s called the clean hand scandal yes that invest you know the clean hands investigation rather led to you know eventually brought us Berlusconi <laughs> so you know the end of this is not necessarily that positive what's What's happened is that a lot of the parties, the more moderate parties that had run Brazil in alliance with the PT from 2002 and without the PT before that, from 94, when Brazil had stabilised, they got absolutely crushed by this scandal and by popular opprobrium, really. I mean, they were just became extremely... These, the, the, all these parties became extremely unpopular. It's a process that's gone on elsewhere in the world and mm -hmm. not necessarily it's a process that you know these parties aren't as popular as they used to be i mean partially because people don't believe in what they offer yes and so you know the, the that's a worldwide problem i think yeah <laughs> i mean whether it's blairism or the socialist party in france or you know clinton style democrats or you know these guys have kind of almost disappeared not yeah. quite yes. at this point but they're not doing well and so that created a vacuum in Brazil. Um, and, you know, these other um, concerns started rising, you know, concerns about, you know, the reaction to liberalism of various kinds. You know, Christians became very concerned about sex education in schools and some of the, some of the gender ideology that was being taught in universities. They became very concerned about... Uh, the criminalization of homophobia. Mm -hmm. A lot of the right-wingers don't like international liberal environmentalism. They see as being an imposition from outside on them. Yeah. They don't like, you know, liberal rules on human rights, you know, for criminals, right? They don't yeah. like that. They think, ah, criminals don't have any rights. And th in that sense, there's a lot of resonance between the grassroots of Bolsonarismo and more, you know, Trump supporters believe. Yeah. Um, you know, they call him the Trump of the tropics, don't they? Yeah, exactly. The Trump of the, you know, and, and Bolsonaro says at one point that you know Trump was his idol. Really? Okay. Yeah. I mean, Bolsonaro's first in iteration in the he'd been a, he was in the army, yeah, as a young man. Yes. And he he basically made his name by being the only guy prepared to defend the tortures of the military dictatorship, and arguing that the problem was they hadn't gone far enough. This That's is in the in the nineties. I mean, you know, deliberately a kind of you know, sort of very you know, provocative. Provocative, it, yeah. yeah. And then you know, in the two thousands, he picks up on in his two point period. He picks up on liberalism and starts attacking feminists and gays. And he, he get he's a, he's a Catholic, but he gets that like, baptized with a with a Pentecostal church in the in the Jordan River. You know, to oh, make a gosh. point. He um, you know he says. For land occupiers, the only answer we've got is a is a is a, a, a gun cartridge. This guy does not, you know, he's he's kind of he's he's got a a kind of flair for the for the provocative, as you say. Yeah, but this this seems to be a common theme now for quite a lot of yeah of people who are getting into power, whether it, whether it be Trump, uh, Boris. Yeah. <laughs> uh, 
Putin while he's and once they're in, this is the whole thing about the populism yeah. thing that you would talk about in the introduction to your book is that once they get there, they turn from being populist uh, leaders that have that have got there, got in through so-called democratic vote, and then become very authoritarian. Yes, and will do anything to try and stay, and it's quite dangerous that whole I ideal or uh, approach that these populist leaders are taking absolutely. to one extent or another. Yeah, absolutely. They're just, he's kind of unhinged in some senses. I mean, he kind of, he just, and so, you know, he picks on, he's, he doesn't play things by the rules, you know, so he doesn't like, you know, if he's on TV, he'll, he won't be polite to his opponent in the debates. He won't necessarily debate him. Mm -hmm. He won't necessarily take part. Yeah. He will, but he'll, if he gives a speech at the UN, he'll have himself filmed. He'll say some explosive stuff. Yeah. And then just walk off and his, the presentation will be filmed and presented on YouTube to his supporters. Yeah. It's sort of arrogance, isn't it? And it's, they love it because it's, it looks like you're being very um, individual and it, you've got a character and yeah. But they're not. It's not in any context whatsoever yeah. that is uh, that represents politics or or their position and yeah. on on the, on how to run a country or how yeah. the country should be run. And you know the thing is that what's happened since two thousand and twenty, and because in COVID, of course, he was, you know, it's par excellence, right? Because COVID, he don't. This is no more than a flu. You know, we shouldn't do anything about it. Really, I think I'm, I'm an athlete. I'm not going to get vaccinated. Uh, you know, I don't agree with vaccination. I'm fine. I'll be fine. Just if people, you know, it's up to individuals to get over it. And so he... But he was making a decision. The difference was that he was making the decision for the people. And some people needed that. They vaccine. needed it, yeah. yeah. Maybe he decided he wouldn't, but he was making that choice for everybody. He was defying medical advice by, yeah. you know, none of the sort of lockdown stuff. That if, if a state or a, gov a city government, because Brazil's quite federal, right? So the states and cities have quite a lot of their own powers as well. Okay. And if they decided they want to lock down, um, he would take them to court over it. He took legal proceedings with the local authority, right? So he was endlessly getting involved in clashes with the court system that would rule against him because they would uphold the constitutional rights of the local uh, authority right okay um so he's constantly getting into that kind of uh row yeah, yeah and and using that to get his supporters on the streets against the judges the yeah. judges are against us we're against you know we're gonna we're gonna overthrow them threatening military action you know trying to it, all, all sorts of stuff you know was, yeah. and and covid was a I Did it change some people's opinions of him because of the, his approach? Is sort of yeah, I think a lot of people in the private sector got really worried, especially when the rich in Brazil, um, of course, enjoy extremely good medical care, right? Yes. Which is not in the state sector, but the private sector. But the in, in March last year, when deaths were up to the sort of 4,000, 3,000, 4,000 a day level in Brazil. It was getting to a point where, you know, intensive care capacity in private hospitals was being exhausted. Mm -hmm. And so better off people start to do something about this. We can't go on like this. Yeah. 
his supporters attacking the Chinese, for example, and the Chinese were providing them with all the vaccines at that stage. Right. Or were a crucial part of the supply chain for the vaccines they got, you know, for the yeah. bits of the vaccine. And then he'd be banging on about various vaccine things and, you know, because he didn't really believe in it. Didn't he think if he took the visor injection, he'd turn into an alligator or yes, something exactly, like that? Yes, exactly, yeah, yeah. Crazy. Yeah, he thought that was a not, you know, he was kind of, you know, he's using it again to stir up the crowd, you know, yeah. it's sort of yeah. like, ah, oh, it's, you know. Very dramatic. Yeah. But there is that sort of, you know, there is that distrust in people about, which is all about populism again. But so, so, so on that theme as well about the homophobia, um, not or denying it or or not accepting it and yet you have uh, Rio's big carnival so how does he I mean it's almost like there's a, a real contradiction in, <laughs> in what his what his thoughts are, are and what he what he will accept whatever his opinion is I think it's kind of interesting Rio's carnival because and broader Brazilian attitudes towards sexuality because Brazil has this image in Europe or the States has been an incredibly kind of libidinous, sort of licentious kind of place where everything goes. And I, I think in reality it's not like that at all. Mm -hmm. um, whereas topless bathing is kind of, kind of de rigueur in Southern Europe amongst Germans and French and Brits, I suppose, if you go to, you know, sort of Mediterranean beaches, it's kind of really frowned upon in Brazil and you know, people wear these That's true, very that. small bathing costumes, but they don't... They, they, they don't, don't bear all. <laughs> no, they don't. And, you know, social attitudes towards sex are quite conservative or more conservative than you think. Yes. I think this is probably changing as a result of the generational shift, yeah? Mm -hmm. But um, I quote in the book a survey from 2003, and it's really quite surprising the percentage of people who are against homosexuality and think it's wrong. You know, you're talking about something like half the population at that, 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 uh, at that date. It may be yeah. less than that now, but it's not. There's a constituency for this message. Yes. Yeah, yeah. um, and you say, you know, we were talking about it before in the big interior in Brazil, where attitudes are more conservative. Um, it's quite patriarchal and quite family-based, patriarchal. It's kind of, you know, quite... quite uh, sedate <laughs> yes yeah just a bit sort of stifling the atmosphere yeah you, know, you can see that you know with sort of yeah um but so, so how does i mean with all that's happening in in brazil then and this um, um at the moment and, and there's also in rio this it's because i was there in 2008 i think 2000 yeah i think it was 2008 and since then there's been this rise of the of uh drug gangs in, in yeah. Rio with the Red Command and, yeah. and, and, and is it the White Command? No, no. Yeah, the Red Command is the one yeah, that's, that's in Rio. Yeah. Um, yeah. And so for somebody travelling in Brazil, what does that, what does that mean for the traveller? I mean, someone like myself going and not really so aware of all yeah. that's happening. Well, behind the scenes I mean, until they listen to this podcast, obviously. Right. <laughs> what, what, where would uh, you would you say it's still a good place to travel to, or would you say you should go? You would be wary here, but definitely go there. What, um, what's your opinion? I think so, so. Just to put some context for this, right? So, you know, the gangs, the big organised crime gangs, 
the biggest one really is the one in its, its origin is in Sao Paulo in the 1980s and it's 1990s. It's called the First Command of the Capital. Mm -hmm. The second biggest one is Red Command that's based in Rio. Yes. Started a, probably a few years earlier. They both have their origins in prisons uh, and they were influenced by the remnants of Brazil's left-wing urban guerrilla movement, actually. Right. You know, in some cases, quite That's directly. <laughs> yeah. Um, and um, there are, in addition, a number of gangs that are more regional in nature, that are based on, you know, regional capitals. So, you know, each of the state capitals has its own gang. And these, these kind of line up in a bewildering pattern of alliances. As essentially, I suppose over the last 10 years, it's all become much more polarized. So you're either with, you're a gang that is with the Red Command or you're a gang that's with the First Command of the Capital. Right. Now, in that context, over the last 20 years, violence, homicidal violence, has become a national thing. It's spread to areas that really 20 years ago didn't see a lot of killing. Mm -hmm. uh, so state capitals in the northeast, for example, not Salvador, because Salvador is a, a bit of an exception, but some of the smaller cities, uh, Maceo, uh, um, Fortaleza, that weren't that violent, in you know 15 20 years ago became very violent yeah in the last five six years how about manaus which is a really manaus is very violent too and okay. and the, the reason for that is that i mean so it's partially because the the gangs have become these these groups have become businesses really okay. illegal businesses and they you know and they they as they as they've grown they, 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 they dispute the territory with rivals mm -hmm. and they dispute that territory through violence um, but um, you, if you get in the way of that it's very dangerous yeah so now the same time rather oddly in Sao Paulo for example it's become much safer in middle-class areas when we were there in first time in 2000 and three, everyone would be telling us how their car had been carjacked or they'd been, you know, robbed at gunpoint or whatever. You know, that doesn't happen as much in Sao Paulo now. Mm -hmm. But this is a very volatile thing. Yeah. And, you know, I think some years are worse than others. Sometimes it's, I think it's quite probable given the scale of the economic slowdown in Brazil and the level of unemployment and the level of want really because inflation food price and petrol price inflation have a direct impact on the poor yes the criminal activity is simply growing as a matter of necessity for a lot of people yeah so I think it is becoming dangerous my sister-in-law who's been living in Salvador for the last six to eight months has told us last week actually that there have been a lot of attacks in i think we should go here uh, on the on the, in salvador it become quite violent okay now that means you have to be very careful yeah 
uh, and very aware of local circumstances. I think it's it's different if you are if you're with a where you're going and with a Brazilian. Yeah. But you certainly, I think certain things are no-nos. One is to go in remote areas without someone who knows what they're doing. Yeah. Uh, it's much. It's not a place I would take risks in at the moment. I, I think taking risks when you're travelling anyway is always a bit. Always a bit, you know, you've got to be careful on you, wherever you, you are, really. You have to really. go with your instinct, really, don't yeah. you? Yeah, I mean, I wouldn't say don't go. And I think, quite honestly, we'll be going to Salvador in September and um, probably travel to Sao Paulo. And depending, we might even go up to some Amazonian city as well. I mean, you know, and I don't think, frankly, that will be particularly dangerous and, and any more than travelling in other in less London. developed parts. Of, well, <laughs> perhaps in London, yeah. I mean, it's true that I've yeah. had my worst criminal experiences in London rather than anywhere else. I've been yeah. burgled three times in the 80s mm -hmm. uh, in three years. Um, so I would say you have to go with your eyes open. I mean, don't, I mean, the things not to do are always never to be conspicuous about what you, yeah. your consumption, never to use your phone in the street if you can possibly avoid it. If you yeah. do, to do it with your backs to the wall and to reduce your vulnerability yes and generally to just definitely don't go into favelas on your own without yeah. or drive into favelas just to have a look you know yeah. be interesting you know no don't do it just because actually favelas are really dangerous i yes. mean they're dangerous because they are controlled by organized crime and there have been cases in the past i don't know five or six years where people have got you know lost their way with a gps and ended up in some godforsaken spot and being shot. Mm -hmm. As an independent traveller, you have to, you always, you know, the it's, dangers are sometimes exaggerated, aren't of they? Of course. I mean, it's like anywhere. When you go, just, it's an awareness thing. Be aware. Don't do anything stupid. Don't flaunt what you've got. Yeah. It's just, it's self-preservation as well. Yeah. It means you'll have a better time as well. Yeah. Because you won't be constantly worried that you're going to have your phone ripped out your hand. Just yeah. don't have it in your hand. Yeah, exactly, yeah. I think that's right. I, I mean, I, I, I don't know. I mean, I've never. I mean, I've been mugged once in Brazil in 2003. I was mugged, uh, but it's because I was I was wandering around with a camera and a stuff and in a in an empty centre of a city, you know, and going after the beaten track, looking at some church or other, and it was there was no one else around. Yeah. Yes. Uh, so you, it was. An opportunist, basically. Yeah. yeah. It's a kid with yeah. a knife. And Fatima had always said, if you get attacked, oh, that's it, don't fight. Don't fight, yes. Just, just, give, let them, the just give them what you've got. Give them what you've got and yeah. get, you know, reduce, just don't make a big deal about it because they're going to be, the chances are that a young kid is going to be a lot faster than you are yeah. with a knife. Yeah. And yeah. you might think you're a big guy, but it's not wise. No. And the risk is high, isn't it? But I think, you know, Brazil's a, interesting country and food wise and music wise and dance wise yeah it's, it's incredible isn't it it's yeah i think culturally. it is i mean fatima's going to see milton nascimento tomorrow and she's going to see marisa monti on thursday there's also a kind of virtue signaling thing that's going to be going on because of dom oh. it's really difficult yeah and i know that you know in some ways bruno and dom have become symbols of amazonian protest and uh, that's that's a good thing and, and you know it's a good way for them to their memory to be preserved if they can get 
kids interested in the Amazon and yeah, yeah. active on green issues and you know consuming less and being more aware of what they aware. are consuming where it's coming yeah, from. yeah that's all positive you yeah, know yeah, yeah. spending less time on the video games um, yeah. I love Brazilian music you know there's the, the bossa nova yes. and in particular I uh, you know the sort of Jao Gilberto, yes. late 50s Beautiful, isn't it? iterations yeah. of it, which well, it's the beginning of it. And the, you know, M some of the MPB stuff from mm -hmm. the 60s and 70s I really like. We're walking by the canal. We've come to this lovely bit of the canal, yeah. which is, this is the Regent's really Canal, lovely. that goes right the way around to Brentford. So yeah. it's all, it goes, goes through to, um, right through Regent's Park. The back of Regent's Park goes to King's Cross. I think I've walked this way with another podcast guest actually and isn't there a cafe or something on just over there on the right poplar something is it poplar cafe or something like oh, that i could try actually we're on the river here all right so what's in this park here so is this is my lane park oh, okay, there so let's go to the yacht uh, then if, if we're if we're well we can go to the we might have to go to the pub hold on stop, stop. oh sorry sorry go around. I'm forgetting go, we were i'm gonna go up. this way yeah sorry <laughs> That's the old-fashioned technique of lots no, of cables. No, it's fine. It's fine. It's fine. <laughs> yeah, we might have to. We might have to go for the put to the pub, but that'd be fine. We just have a. That's fine. How about food? Yeah, food is. What's your favourite? So, there's a word in Portuguese called aconsegante, which means kind of. Um, it's kind of like someone taking you in their arms. Uh, it's kind of like comfortable. Okay. It's like um, welcoming. And when I get to Brazil, I like to have a strong espresso coffee. Yes. Uh, cafezinho. And cafezinho. A What's yeah, a cafezinho? Cafezinho, a little coffee. Uh, okay. Strong coffee. Normally in Brazil, so with sugar, although I don't drink it with sugar. Yeah. And then kind of powdered queijo, you know, this kind of uh, originally a, a Minas speciality that's become more of a national thing and they they have things called salgados which are a kind of snacks um hugely polarific but you know hugely great they're great absolutely <laughs> lovely tasty. yeah absolutely <laughs> lovely and really nice juices you know okay. so really good orange juice um usually freshly squeezed yes uh lovely watermelon yeah very nice mangoes passion fruit and then uh, I would say the other stuff I really like is um, some of the fish is really good. Some of the meat is extremely good. Yeah. Quality steaks and so on, which I, don't, I wouldn't normally eat, but that's very good. There's in Sao Paulo, there's three different culinary traditions. There's a there's excellent sushi because there's a very big Japanese community. Yes. And it's actually better than the sushi in Japan, I think. Is it? Yeah. It's kind of a bit like, you know, it's a bit like Indian food in, in the UK, which is, has, bears no resemblance to the Indian food you buy in Delhi or Mumbai. No, no. It's, you know, because it's come from Suliet in Bangladesh. That's where a lot of the restaurateurs have come in London. Uh -huh. And so you have, you know, chicken tikka masala, which is not, an exi not really an Indian dish. No. Uh, I might be. Uh, um, so it's a bit like that in, in Brazil. The sushi is fantastic. Yeah. Um, to be consumed in large amounts with iced beer. Yes. Uh, and uh, there's a particular beer that I like, which is it's called Polar, I think. It's a uh, beer in Brazil's too weak usually. 
mm -hmm. and it is quite weak compared to English beer, but right. it's, it tends to be, you know, it's not very hoppy basically. Okay. So it's a kind of lager. I think it's called Polar. I can't remember. Actually, I'm thinking Polar is Venezuelan, I think. I'm just trying to think what it's called. My memory, again, you know, <laughs> one of those obvious things I've forgotten. And then, um, yeah, I mean, the breakfast you can get in hotels is superb because they do a buffet and they have all, all the fruits out and they have, you know, different juices. Yeah. I remember trying something just before I got on the plane, actually. It was very heavy, but very like a black bean yeah. thing. It was absolutely delicious, but you can only have a little of it. Yeah, it's so, exactly. It's so heavy on your stomach. You have to be kind of careful about putting weight on in Brazil, because the other thing that I love that is is caipirinha, which you know you. Oh are. yes, yeah. With the cacha is it cachaça? Yeah. Yes. I mean, and, and which isn't so popular in this country, is it? No, no, it's it's not been marketed very much yeah. at all in the but UK. It's delicious. I love it. Yeah, I mean, I, I, I you know, that is fabulous and. It's um, it's an excellent place to to eat. And the, these three culinary traditions are Japanese, so essentially yeah. sushi, uh, Italian, yes, where they have very good pizza and excellent pizza, really, in South. Okay, don't go too fast, Richard, because I'll end up oh, right, in the, yeah, the region. That's true. Canal. I don't want to. Yeah, we <laughs> don't do that. Do you <laughs> no, I'm just worried about the bikes that are going to storm through. Oh yeah, hopefully they won't. But they, I can see nothing's coming. Ah, good. And third one is Middle Eastern food. Ah, really because there was a huge immigration from, uh, from the Ottoman Empire mm -hmm. before the First World War. So from modern Lebanon, yes. uh, Syria, okay. uh, Palestine. Um, so my secretary is of uh, Arab origin uh, in, in Brazil. My secretary was my secretary when I was at the FT, mm -hmm. Miriam. Uh, yeah became my you know second mother for a while Aww. in Brazil. Hello Miriam. <laughs> if you're listening uh, to this podcast. Yeah. <laughs> Miriam. Miriam. Hamarat, yeah. Okay. I mean Armenia Segunda Mai. And we're very close friends with still. Yes. Coconut water's great. There's a so lovely suite that they do with a kind of cheese ice cream. Okay. We've just come to a lock here. Yes. And, and this is the Limehouse Basin. Is that the DLR going ahead above us? Yeah, this is yeah, the just before Limehouse Station here. Yeah. We're right at the bottom, the southern end really of the, the Regent's Canal. And this, you know, you can go all the way up to Birmingham eventually on this. Fantastic. Uh, like by the there. Union, Grand Union. Mm -hmm. And of course, you know, back in the day, ships would uh, take the, would end up here and unload all sorts of stuff. And this, you know, this oh, really yes. is now a marina, yeah? Yes. But it went out into the Thames. Um, and all these are, you know, sort of 90s housing, but yep. it's unfortunate that they never kept the originals, as is no. often the case, this part of the river. It's a shame, isn't it? It's terrible. It's the responsibility of very short-term development yeah. uh, and not thinking about the architectural values of the property. So, you know, they, did, they were able in, the, in other parts of the river to protect some other historic buildings, yeah. Uh, in this part of London, really the whole of the east, they've not they've not done it as much. No, uh, you know what? I think it's probably like a mentality. They see it's run down, and so they think, oh well, nobody really cares about here, yeah. so it doesn't matter if we knock it down. With rather than thinking about the potential of it. 
beyond the end of their also, term here. Also, there was a lot of pressure from the local authorities, old-fashioned Labour local authorities, to build for social housing mm -hmm. and not to try to develop it more imaginatively and to also to try to preserve jobs in the area and so on. Yeah. Just here there's a really interesting sign because um, apparently at this, this dockside area here yes. they used to land shiploads of ice. 15 ice ships arrived from Scandinavia each year. Oh my goodness. The ice was loaded onto barges at Limehouse and carried to ice wells on the Regent's Canal at King's Cross. That's incredible, isn't and it? From here, so distributed to busters, fishmongers and ice cream makers. So there used to be ice ships, guys, arriving mm. in this, where we are now, in, I guess, the 19th century. You know, yeah. a lot of coal from Durham to supply gas works. Um, so they came on their onker barks from Norway and Finland. Yeah. Wow. That's incredible, isn't it? It's like it's a real piece of history we're looking at. It's, yeah. It wouldn't. It would have been a very different atmosphere. It would have been really polluted. Lots of people running around. Well, probably quite noisy. I, I know a guy who lived here as a student in the late 70s, and he said it was absolutely awful place. Was it? Yeah, it was really dangerous here. Okay. And, you know, there weren't many people here in a night, you know, I think he was living somewhere in a council place just saying how terrible it was, you know, it was really, really kind of abandoned and yeah. basically quite, quite a, you know, problem area. Yeah, yeah. We can look go. At it now. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's, it's kind of, gentrified. well, uh, daylight now, you know, which is <laughs> one of the rare days of the year when it's as good as this. Yeah, we're looking at, and so many barges are just, they're living, they're people just living barge life. Yeah. In, yeah. in Limehouse, what's it called, Limehouse? Limehouse Basin. Basin, Limehouse Basin. Yeah, and they, you know, basically they can sail from here all around, you know, yeah. onto the river. So you can go from here to Birmingham, can you? Well, I think so, yeah. I think you can go on the Grand Union and that, you know, as far as I know, you, you know, the Grand Union comes in at um, Paddington and I'm pretty sure, yeah, I mean, we can check in the uh, pub. Oh, yes, and then you... Or in years. Then you come yeah. round on the Regent's Canal. Yeah. Oh, that's right, of course. I would think that's right. Um, and then you could go out onto the Thames and go, I mean, I suppose, you know, that was, so the boats carrying ice, you know, so ice, the ice depot, depots in King's Cross. Yeah, know. yeah, incredible. I remember thinking that was extraordinary detail really, that I'd want to get into a, <laughs> a book at some stage. Yeah, no. It is, I mean, I suppose coming over in the winter as well, it's not going to, uh, it's not going to melt, is it? No, I don't think so. As we move away from the Limehouse Basin, Richard, and we go off to find the pub. Yeah, I think that's probably <laughs> it's the It's a lovely sunny afternoon. Yeah. Um, are there any questions that I haven't asked you would have liked me to ask, or is there anything you'd like to add? I mean, we know that your book is, can be found, this is a podcast listener. Yeah can find your book on Amazon. Yeah, it's in paperback now and it's online as an ebook. Mm -hmm. um, it is a... It's in hardback as well. It's in hardback. It's accessible through Amazon and through Waterstones principally. Yes. Or directly through MUP. Um, Manchester U University, University Press. Press. Um, and if people wanted to contact you about the book or anything else... Absolutely. Is, is there a, they can, they can the contact me 
through Instagram? Through or? In, well, through through Twitter, really. Through Twitter, okay. Uh, or through um, or through Instagram. I'm on Instagram. I couldn't give you off the top of my head my my number on Instagram, but um, my um, uh, or through email, Richard.lapper at gmail.com richard.lapper at gmail.com yeah okay cool um and i'll leave it i'll put in the show notes anyway your instagram and twitter names so people can yeah links is the word i'm looking for that'll be good we'll go to i know we're going to go to the grapes because that's a pub that is quite historic um it's owned by ian mcclellan the actor ian mcclellan oh wow okay and it it was associated with dickens directly in the 1820s when Mm -hmm. he was a kid apparently danced on the table of his father there. Did he? Okay. Uh, his was father... That, was that pre or, pre or post him coming out of prison? I think probably he was six at the time, so the 1818. Um, his father was a, a shipping merchant. He used to buy stuff for the Navy, and he bought a lot of his supplies around here. Okay. So they'd end up in this pub. Right. I think. That's a nice bit of history for everybody. Yeah. And um, I think that's right. Um, I'm sure you know probably find many of these these local remarks I have not prepared for. <laughs> I'm making terrible blunders. Yeah, I will double check it, Richard. If yeah. it's wrong, <laughs> I will correct it on the podcast. So just kind of thinking about the descriptions of the because um, you know I'm fairly sure of the Brazil stuff, but the local stuff because I'm I'm not used to talking about it. <laughs> I'm um, I'm not sure I'm completely on level territory there. So those are the the links that people can find you on. Is there anything else you'd like to add about your book at all or Uh, about Brazil or about, you know, generally? Yeah, I mean, I think it's going to remain quite a big story for the next few months. The elections are in October. Yes. Um, You know, because of Dom and Bruno's deaths, it's been in the news quite recently, obviously, and to a limited extent. You know, beyond that, in in October, there should be some coverage when the election campaign, well, the election takes place, and then the second round will be at the end of October. Yes. Um, so you don't think it will be a, a one-round victory? I, no, I, I think it's round. unlikely. It's not impossible, mm-hmm. but I would say unlikely. So that's what I would say. I'm just wondering whether we should go here and I should give Fatima a call oh, and we yes. can sit on the river. Yes, that'd be nice. Because it's... Um... Whoops! Get run over. Oops, sorry, yeah. So, uh, to all you podcast listeners, thanks for tuning in to this week's podcast with Richard. Thank you very much, Richard. Thank for... you, Emma. <laughs> it's been and a pleasure talking to you. thank you, listeners. It's do... been a huge pleasure. Oh, and do please uh, take a look at Richard's book, Beef. Bibles Bible and bullets. bullets. Oh, one Bible. Beef. Brazil in the age of Bolsonaro. Only one A of the six nouns in that. So, Beef, Bible and Bullets. Brazil in the age of Bolsonaro. Okay. So, thank you very much, everybody, for tuning in. I hope you've enjoyed the podcast. I certainly have. I've been very inspired. Um, if you have enjoyed it, please do share with your friends. Please do give the podcast episode a a star rating and a review if you have time that would be fantastic because it helps the podcast episodes and my guests to go further field 
and it's all about them and do please subscribe to the podcast uh, i hope you've enjoyed it if you want to find out a little bit more about me and what i'm up to or about to be up to uh, do check out travelingfood.co.uk which is my website obviously you can find me on instagram facebook and twitter at that link also i'm going to wind up now as we're going to the pub for a quick drink do enjoy the rest of your week take care and thanks for listening and just a quick reminder to you all that this is part two of two episodes recorded with richard lapper the first episode you can find on the traveling through podcast episode 63 and like episode 63 this episode is also dedicated to dominic dom phillips and Bruno Pereira, who were murdered in the Amazon while defending and protecting the forest itself and the rights of the indigenous people.